Before we turn to our passage, I'd like to ask you to turn in your bulletin to the, the last page. It's page six, if you, if you have one. Just by way of recap, um, we're in a sermon series called Pillars. We're looking at four pillars that we think are essential to a biblical church. Worship, community, discipleship. We look at discipleship this week. And then next week we look at mission. And when we look at mission next week, we launch into a little series on mission. And another way to think of this is with four G's, that a church exists to glorify. That's worship, glorify God. A church must gather together. That's community. A church must grow like Christ. That's discipleship. We look at that today. And a church must go, be sent out by Christ on mission. Glorify, gather, grow, and go And if you want a little exercise to see where you're at in your own life, just take this home and draw a picture, a little stick figure of you in the center of the circle where the three circles all overlap. And you just look at it and think, what's my community like? Who do I gather with? Look at discipleship and say, am I growing? Look at mission and say, does my life have a purpose? And then ask in all these things, does everything I do tend to the glory of God or tend to the glory of me? It's a helpful little exercise to think about how we're doing. But so we'll be in discipleship today. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. It's on page 977 in your little blue pew Bible. It's Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 16. You can turn there. And why don't I ask God to be with us as we turn to his word. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that um, as you're at work, in the midst of our worship, that you now would um, pursue men and women by your spirit working through your word, that you would convict and you would encourage. And you would also catch, Lord, those who have never been caught, but also those who are walking away, Lord. This is a work only you can do, God, and I gladly acknowledge that. I am a poor messenger, Lord, and I rely entirely on you right now. So please, God, May this not be a wasted half an hour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine a scene with me. So you need to use your mind's eye for this. Here's the scene. Colored lights cut through a dark sanctuary, blazing across rows of worshipers with lifted hands. A layer of fog drifts across the stage, as guitars sound. The pastor gets up, gives a riveting message with stories to keep even the drowsiest congregant awake, even chuckling. Following the service, the media team posts an Instagram reel summarizing the key points of the sermon. This is entertainment at its finest. And yet, somehow, Generation Z is unimpressed. This is how Abigail Thompson, a young college student and a member of Generation Z, those born between 1995 and 2012, this is how Abigail Thompson begins her award-winning essay titled, Generation Z Needs a Place at Your Kitchen Table. Abigail laments that only 28% of her generation is interested in attending church regularly. Even more shockingly, only 4% of Generation Z has a biblical worldview. 
Abigail writes, never has a generation been more invested in entertainment. Yet perhaps the constant current of entertainment that Generation Z lives beneath has left them waterlogged, even drowning. My generation is grasping for something real. Abigail goes on in her article to explain and tell the story of how it is that she, a member of Generation Z, ended up coming more deeply into the church rather than leaving it like so many of her peers. And her story centers around something that happened one Sunday at church. On Sunday after the services, an older couple invited her, Abigail, and her three friends to come to their home for a meal. They sat around the family's dining room table. They learned about the older couple. Turns out they had been missionaries in Africa for 17 years. And over warm food and tea, they talked to them about Jesus. And it was this, the life of Jesus flowing through the flesh and blood of someone else. It was this that caught her heart. And here's the lesson I took from her essay and the lesson with which I want to turn to our sermon today. Jesus' method for building his church is not entertainment. It's discipleship. Jesus' method for building his church is not entertainment. It's not talking about what the world wants to hear in a way that they want to hear it. It's not being tantalizing. It's not entertainment. It's discipleship. Discipleship. Do you know what that is? Discipleship is where the dynamic power of God flows through a personal relationship. Discipleship is where the truth about Christ gets modeled in an actual life, becoming not just true, but by being in flesh, becoming beautiful, authentic, real, something you can touch, something you can feel. Entertainment is about impressing someone. Discipleship is about loving someone. And discipleship is not fast or flashy. It's slow. Often it happens out of sight. It's long-suffering. It's a long obedience walking alongside one, side someone in the same direction. And the next generation, well, perhaps all of us, we've simply been entertained enough. We've been soaked in fast, fluorescent, and too often fickle digital communities. But we long for flesh and blood. This is how we've been made. And this is why we must revisit this ancient, tested and tried way of life that comes to us right from Jesus, discipleship. This is Jesus' model for how to build his church. Jesus called his followers disciples. He didn't call them Christians. He didn't call them congregants. His followers weren't called Christians until about a decade later. It happened in Antioch, north of Jerusalem, a bustling town. They're probably called Christians to simply show how they're different than, than Jews and adherence to other religions. But Jesus called his, his followers disciples. And in that day, a disciple simply meant a learner, a student. But it was more than the image of someone going into a classroom, sitting down and listening. It was more like the image of an apprentice. Jesus' disciples, we can see this when we, we look at the Gospels, they were disciples because they gave total devotion 
to him through a total commitment and didn't just listen to him but followed him, learning not just by his teaching but by watching what he did and trying to embody it themselves. It was a whole way of life. Discipleship is where the dynamic power of God flows through a personal relationship. And discipleship, of course, it is about you following Jesus to grow more like him. But that's only one side of the coin. Discipleship is not just about my growth, it's about your growth. Jesus' disciples are always trained to do what? Make disciples. So Jesus' last command, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, is in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Not go and be a good Christian. Go and make disciples. Disciples, disciple. And so here's just the definition I'd put in front of us as we dig into discipleship today. Here's how I would define it. Discipleship is the power of God working through a personal relationship where I grow like Christ by helping you grow like Christ. Think of a triangle. I'm relating to God up above. I'm helping you relate to God up above, but I'm doing it through our horizontal relationship with one another. And it's like an electrical current. An electric circuit gets connected and a special type of power flows through this. This is simply how God has designed things. You know, a lot of people, if you read history, they build kingdoms through great acts of power. War, a king subdues another king and makes his people subjects to him. Great political leaders write up, draw up new boundaries, and they they create a kingdom top down. Jesus creates his kingdom the total opposite. He doesn't tell his followers at the end of Matthew to take up armed resistance against Rome. He doesn't tell them to seek revenge on his executioners. He says, make disciples. Here's my kingdom. Enthrone me in one heart at a time through persuasion and love and teaching them all about me. Discipleship, not entertainment, is the way of the kingdom. So here's what we're going to do today. I just want you to ask yourself, begin by asking yourself, are you a disciple of Jesus? I mean, I know just the fact that you're here, at least today I could call you a congregant or a churchgoer. But I want us to be a church of disciples who make disciples, not congregants who congregate. So are you kind of a cultural Christian, a traditional thing? It's what your family did. It's the right thing to do. You go to church on Sunday. Or are you a disciple? It's a question I want to be in your mind. And that means not only that you've dynamically given your life to Jesus, but you're willing to follow him in making other disciples. And as a church, do we have a culture of discipleship? Or are we kind of more program heavy? kind of entertainment centric, you know, come to the good thing, sit in your chair and get fed and leave? Or do we see this kind of dynamic that Abigail wrote about where, where you just, you end up at one another's dining room table with the life of Christ flowing through a personal relationship? So I just want to, I want to probe our discipleship today by turning to a passage that I think is all about discipleship, even though the word disciple is not in the passage. It's Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 16. We're going to look at this and see what it teaches us about discipleship. Um, now, Right off the bat, I just want you to see in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, the twin themes that come together are growth. I'll show you this in a second. Paul's writing about the church growing up to be like Christ. That's discipleship. You're supposed to grow to be like him. 
but also there's a theme of community or togetherness. It's not isolated growth. So notice, I'll pick up at verse 15 and 16. You can see this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, there's growth, in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So I'll pause there. Discipleship is growing up to be like Christ. That's what you're doing. Okay? He goes on, from whom the whole body, notice the communal language now, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's a, it's a long sentence, but do you see the image Paul is using is of a human body, and he's saying individual Christians are like joints or ligaments of that body, and growth involves the community working together. So, so that's where I'm getting the theme of discipleship. There's clearly relationships going on in this church, and they're clearly involved with growing like Jesus. So I'm going to drill down into this passage, and I'm going to set before us six truths about discipleship. Not huge long points, just six truths. We'll put them up on the overhead. We also have this manuscript up if you can't keep up, but six truths about discipleship. Number one, you're already being discipled. You are already being discipled. Um, this, this simply is to point out the inevitability of influence. Paul, Paul doesn't imagine a world here where some people are slavishly tricked into being disciples and following another person and the other people are delightfully free. He has an image of everybody following. Everybody's being influenced. The question simply is by who? So notice in verse 14, um, in verse 13, Paul has said, I want you to grow up and be like Christ. And then he gives a reason in verse 14, so that, and now he's going to give you in verse 14, an, his image of what it's like to be out in the world. See if you think it's a neutral scene. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It's, it's a nautical image of someone on a boat that's being whipped about by waves. They can't keep their balance. It's also the image of a young child. Sometimes the Bible paints childlike faith favorably, and sometimes it points out the negatives. Gullible, not sure of yourself. That, that's the image Paul uses. Paul, Paul imagines two options. You're either under the leadership and influence of the Spirit of God, or you're under the influence of the Spirit of the age. That's it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. To be human is to be a disciple. God gives Adam and Eve two options, be my disciple or be Satan's disciple. That's what happens in Genesis 3. So our poets say things like, I am the captain of my soul. Or is it Robert Frost, a road diverged and I took the road less traveled? Of course, I'm paraphrasing. But, but we seem to have this idea that we really do choose our own way. And I'm not at all undermining the fact that we are individuals. But we simply need to point out that we're not ourselves by ourselves. You know, researchers have noted for a long time, from your earliest days as an infant, you learn how to smile and talk by imitating your parents. You know, you know human beings, and we're like this as we grow, we, we learn how to think about the world through our families through the language we're given. We don't decide whether we want to speak Spanish or English or both like Sergio. It just happens. And these languages then frame the world for us. 
We, we don't often choose our friend groups. We're thrown into a school. We don't choose the era when we're born. Do you think you'd think like you think right now if you were born in 1790? Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. And so the, the first thing to ask yourself is not if you're a disciple. The question to ask yourself is, who is discipling you? So this week, whose voices, what media star, political pundit, famous person, family member, whose voice will have the greatest impact on how you think about God? Whose voice will have the greatest impact on how you think about the future? Whose voice will have the greatest impact on how you think about hope and value? This is simply truth one. You're already being discipled. The question is, by whom? Truth two. Discipleship flows through relationships, not just podcasts. I love reading books. I'm actually a bit introverted. I love being on my own reading books. Sometimes I listen to podcasts. You can learn a whole lot on your own. But you can't become a robust Christian by yourself. And this is because Christianity is more like learning a craft. You know, I was a, a basketball coach for a while. And you could walk up to a young man in high school and you give him a textbook and he could read about how to shoot a jump shot and how to play defense. And he would have no idea how to do it. You have to walk him onto a court and work with him and show him in real life how to do it. Christianity's like that. It's a craft. It takes another person coming alongside you saying, this is how you rejoice in suffering. This is how you pray without ceasing. This is what it's like. Let me show you the technique. And it flows through personal relationships. So notice the relational dynamic in the passage. I already pointed it out, but just look down at verse 16 when Paul says, when each part is working properly, it's near the end of verse 16, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow. So, so he's picturing parts of the body working together. And this is, of course, a metaphor, but if you apply it to the church, it means that individuals are relating to one another, helping one another. Now, so, so discipleship is going to involve personal relationships. Now, these can look different. I think some discipleship relationships are mentor-mentee. That's very common. Paul and Timothy. This is where a person who's further along with the faith takes an interest in someone who's newer in the faith, and they spend time together. That person models following Christ. Sometimes they're peer-to-peer -peer friendships. You, you can fall into a great friendship with a Christian brother or sister, and, and you look back over your shoulder and you realize God was helping you grow through that friendship. You know, the Puritans, writing in the end of the 16th, 17th century, they used to talk about a special bosom friend. And I think they had in mind John, John um, leaning on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper. And he called himself the beloved disciple. And, and we, we today would use the language of maybe an accountability partner or a prayer partner. And what the Puritans knew is that following Jesus, you need to have a close personal relationship through which the dynamic power of God flows. I wonder if you, you have any of those. So that's the, the second truth. Discipleship runs through personal relationships, not just podcasts and books. Third, discipleship involves helping your church grow, not just yourself. Um, we tend to reduce growth 
to personal goals. So the, the, the young daughter or son will, will be asking the mom to mark growth marks, right, on the doorpost, see how much they're growing, and they put their name on it. This is my growth. The young man in the gym will, will look at his gains, flexing his muscles. The student may measure their growth by their GPA. A young professional may measure their growth by their resume. And these things are, they're not, it's not bad to, to want to grow. And certainly the Bible wants you to grow personally. That's simply just not the point of this passage. And it's crucial that we see this. Notice again verse 16. I'm going to read this. And you tell me if you can notice what or who is growing. Paul says again, the end of verse 16, when each part is working properly, this is individual now, working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now is that the individual or is that the church? We know it's the church because right before that, Paul's talked about the whole body. He's talking about the body of Christ. So the growth he has in mind is a church. So this is more like the growth you'd think through if you were the member of a team. And you'd say, look, I may be improving on my jump shot, but during this season, it matters how the whole team does. That's the record that's put up. And, and this can be frustrating if you're a high performer. Because you're going to feel a lot of drag. This would be like being thrown into AP chemistry in high school. And you know you work hard and you know you're smart. And the teacher says, you're all going to get one grade. I'm going to grade the whole class collectively. And you say, that's not fair because she doesn't work hard. She's a slacker. And the teacher says, well, you better teach her how to work hard. Now, now think about this real quick. So discipleship means caring about your local church's health. This is just coming right out of this passage. Now, now let, me, let me point out how obvious this should be for us. Discipleship, individual discipleship is growing more like who? Jesus, right? It's growing to be like Jesus. Now, what is Jesus like? If you look at Jesus over his ministry and the vision of him in the future, the man is in love with the church. He died for the church. He refers to the church as his bride. So as you're growing like Christ, if you're not growing in affection for Christ's bride, you're missing a huge part of his life. And so the more you look at him, the more you will see his glance going over to this little motley crew, this odd group of people called a local church, and you will feel his profound affection for them. And you will begin to ask yourself questions like, you know, I know there's areas I need to grow. I want to become more patient. Maybe I want to know scripture better. I'd love to grow in evangelism. But how's the false church Anglican doing? I mean, honestly, what, have you thought about our health metrics and not just to condemn the church, like, well, I go there, but I'm not like them. You're, if you're part of us, we're going to get graded together. And I know you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ on your own, but, but there's something about our togetherness that matters. So you may notice some of the things that I think we're great at. I think we're amazing in hospitality. I think we're great at worship. I mean, you feel it when we're here. You guys bring your Bibles. You're hungry. You attend. But maybe you think, you know, I don't think the false church Anglican is very good at evangelism. I mean, my friends go to Baptist churches and they're baptizing people all the time. We never really see that happen here. Like, like adults who were converted. And maybe God will put it on your heart in your small group, one relationship at a time to start asking, hey, hey friend, hey Bob, hey Jess, can we maybe work together and think about how to grow in evangelism? 
This doesn't mean top down. It doesn't mean you go to the leadership and say, hey, do this program. It's bottom up. It means you, one person at a time, you start working on our weaknesses together. But this is the third point. Discipleship involves helping your church grow, not just yourself. Fourth, discipleship requires teaching the word. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way. You know, this is one of the only specifics Paul gives us about how the growth happens. We know they're together, but he gives us this little window, speaking the truth in love. And by the way, verse 15 is right after verse 14. Remember in verse 14, they're storm-tossed. They're all unstable. The antidote to that is coming under the steady diet of the Word of God, which stabilizes you. Now, speaking the truth means more than not lying. You could read this and say, yeah, Christians shouldn't lie to each other, sure. But this means more, more, it means speaking the gospel, speaking the word of God. You know, from, from its very inception, Christianity was a faith rooted in a book, a body of teaching known as Holy Scripture. And teaching was paramount. Acts 2, we saw this last week. The first Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Jesus was called a rabbi or a teacher. St. Luke, in his gospel, when he's writing to a guy named Theophilus, he says to him, Theophilus, I want you to have certainty concerning the things you have been taught using the word catecheo, where we get the word catechesis. It's always been a teaching institution. And here's how this works. You can see in verse 11 that Jesus gives to the church leaders. He mentions here, Paul says, he gave to the church apostles, evangelists, prophets, shepherds, and teachers. Okay, that's verse 11. These in turn, verse 12, equip the saints, that's everyone, for the work of ministry. Verse 12, the work of ministry, verse 13, is what? Building up the body of Christ. That happens, verse 15, by speaking the truth in love. So this is just to point out that this speaking the truth, discipleship requires speaking the word, this is for all of us. Your appointed leaders, people like me that you hire, we have a responsibility to guard the deposit, to make sure only the authoritative scriptures are taught. But our, we're not the only ones that have a teaching ministry here. We need to equip you so that you teach one another the word of God. And friends, people are not born into the world with the requisite knowledge to be a Christian. Especially if they've grown up in a pagan culture like Rome or like America right now. Or if they've grown up in a, let's say, just a different religious background. They don't know that they have a creator and that part of how they need to live is in obedience to their creator's design for them, that the way he's made them is how they live according to the grain. They may not even know how bad their sin problem is. They don't know they'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. They don't know that this momentary short life is like a vapor compared to eternity. They don't know these things. They don't know how to pray. They don't know who Paul is. They certainly don't know who Zachariah was. So we, we have to teach discipleship. Discipleship means teaching the word. That's the fourth thing. So I hope in your relationships with the church, it's fine if you talk about football. It's fine if you talk about your kids. But at some point, would you talk about last Sunday's sermon? At some point, would you ask, what is God teaching you in your word? We're not above these questions, friends. These are the most important questions you can ask.
Fifth, discipleship requires modeling the word. Fourth, teaching the word. Fifth, modeling the word. Notice uh, the language of love here. Paul says in verse 15, teaching the truth in love. Um, Apparently you can teach the truth in the wrong way. You can teach the truth in hate or in anger. You know, I always like to think of this image of, you know, sending someone into a basketball game and they've got the truest shot. They hit five three-pointers in a row. I mean, it's as true as can be, perfect form. And they check out and you say, great, you just scored on the wrong basket. That's being right in the wrong way. It's speaking the truth in hate and it can do more damage than not speaking at all. Paul, you know, he bookends this whole section in love. In verse 2 of this chapter, he says we're to bear with one another in love. In verse 16, the very end of our section, he says the body builds itself up in love. And then right here in verse 15, he says speaking the truth in love. This means the manner with which we disciple one another and speak the truth is crucial. Now think about this with a minute for me. How do you speak the truth in love? Does it simply mean quoting a Bible verse to someone and at the end of it saying, oh, by the way, this is in love? You can't really just speak love, can you? It, it's, it's, it's an atmosphere you cultivate over time. This means that, that I think, this is where I'm getting the word discipleship requires modeling the word. Love is where you are embodying the word. And people can see it and feel it. You know, it's like we're, 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 as a church, we're a bunch of fashion models. But we're not modeling clothes. We're modeling the character of Christ. And we should be walking around. People should say, wow, phew, walking. That's a beautiful person. Beautiful person. We model Jesus' character by our lives. Now, how does this happen in discipling? It happens by life on life. Back in 1930, there was a man named Dawson Trotman, and he was a lumberyard worker, and he got on fire for the Lord. And he started to read in the Bible these passages where we were called to teach one another and train one another's one another to know the word and then to pass it on. Passages like 2 Timothy 2.2 where Paul says to Timothy, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And Dawson said, this is what I'm going to give my life to. And he started discipling people and it created a culture. It spread through the Navy. And in 1933, he founded a ministry. Do you know what it was called? It's called The Navigators. And The Navigators is a ministry that's passionate about discipleship. And they have this phrase when you look at their literature, and they refer to discipleship as life-on-life mentoring. And I think that's a great image for what it means to speak the truth in love. It means life-on-life. It means you invite people into your life. And this means inviting them into the mess of your life. You're all very busy. Maybe you're a busy mom. You don't have time. You invite a single gal over to help you prepare dinner one night. Invite her over while you're folding laundry. Invite her over while you're carpooling. Maybe you're a busy dad. You got to carpool the kids to a soccer tournament Saturday. Invite a brother in Christ to drive with you and be with you. Maybe you just exercise a lot. Invite someone to go for a walk with you. Invite someone to go to coffee with you. And you see what happens in this life on life is you have a very organic, natural way to feel the other person and to have them teach you about prayer and model how they rejoice in sorrow, model how they bear up in stress. And the other thing that happens in life on life is in discipleship this way, you see not just the good, but the ugly. 
You go into someone's home and you realize they've just had a fight with their spouse. And now that person can model for you real Christianity, which is how do you deal with conflict well? How do you bear up when life is hard? Do you guys know what, what young curious people about Christianity, what young Christians also need to see is not just a veneer of our perfection. They need to see that our lives are really hard. They need to see the real thing and to see what it's like for us to bear up. If you're discipling someone, you may need to take the lead in confessing sin to show them what that means, to show them what it means to fight sin. But, and this is the fifth point, discipleship requires modeling the word through life on life. Sixth and finally, discipleship is God's plan for you. I've pointed this out already. You know, some people think, well, this is just for people who go on staff with the navigators or it's just for extroverts. That's not true. Again, just look at the text with me. I, don't, I try not to make stuff up. Verse 11 and 12, you can, you can see this. It's tempting, right? But Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, this is verse 11, and teachers to equip the saints. You could circle that. To equip the saints, if you're a Christian, that's you. To equip the saints for what? Do you see it? For the work of ministry. What's the work? Building up the body. How's it work? Discipleship. So this is God's plan for you. This is his plan for you. You know, you know we think so much about our callings in this culture, and rightly so, but we tend to go, go right past God, called me to himself, to he called me to this vocation, to this part of the world, he called me to this marriage, and he called me to this city to live in. I'm going to change the world by God's calling. Fair enough. That may be true. It may not be true. But we... We fly past the fact that God has called you, if you're a Christian, to other Christians. And he's called you to help them. Do you know, the, 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 back, the backdoor promise here in this passage is that if you're weary, God has appointed people to help you. Is that not, that's the gospel. God has said, I've saved you and I promise to help you. And one of the ways he helps you is through bringing people along to disciple you. Older people, younger people, different people. And you'll just find them when you hang out around a church and you pray and they will help you along. This is God's plan for your life. It's why you live here. It's why he has you in the career you're in. There may be many other callings he's at work in, but it's not less than this. So let me just close with some specific application. Would you take some initiative and prayerfully ask, is there someone God is calling you to disciple? It will require some awkwardness because you may have to pursue someone. You may, ha may have to initiate getting coffee. Who, who might, where might you start? Well, here's a thought. Start with a family member. If God's put you in a family, he's chosen that you're in these relationships the rest of your life. Maybe you're a mom. Maybe he wants you to start with your daughter. If you're a father, maybe your son. Maybe it's a grandchild. Maybe it's a brother or sister or an aunt or uncle. If not your nuclear family, how about your church family? Look for someone who's teachable. Someone who has no interest, doesn't want to talk to you. Don't waste a lot of time there. But someone who's eager, who's hungry, you can just feel it. They want to, you give them a book, they'd read it within a week. Look for someone who's teachable. Look for something that's convenient. Ask, what are my patterns of life? Is there someone who works near me? 
Is there someone who likes to jog? I like to jog. Is there someone who, who likes to golf? Maybe, maybe we go out to golf and we, we talk about Mark. So, so take some initiative and then have a plan. You need to plan for where you want to go if you're going to disciple someone. Here's two things to plan for. You want the person to grow in understanding. Verse 13 says, grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, I want to help this person know Jesus better. Well, how are you going to do that? Maybe you outline the Gospel of Mark. Don't just read it. Outline it with them. Over six months. Ask them. You want to outline Mark? How do you outline a book? I don't know. Let's Google it. We'll figure it out. Help them grow in understanding, but also help them grow in living. Right? As you, as you do life on life, watch. Do they need help in their prayer life? Could you help them think about being sacrificial? Maybe they've never tithed and they need to think about it. Or maybe they need help with patience. Or maybe they need help in how to relate to their spouse. But help them in living, in understanding and in living. But friends, our friends in Generation Z... They don't need to be impressed by us, by good sermons or great music. I mean, these things are wonderful. They need our lives. They need our dining room table. They need our time. They need the life and power of God flowing through personal relationships. Let me close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a great pastor in London. He loved his church. And in his autobiography, he recounts his desire to help his members and see them help one another follow Jesus as disciples and also make it to that celestial city. He's quoting a little bit at the beginning from Pilgrim's Progress. Maybe you'll recognize this. He says, this is Spurgeon. I am occupied in my small way as Mr. Greatheart was employed in Bunyan's day. I'm in the same line of business. I am engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven. It is my business, as best I can, to kill dragons and to cut off giants' heads and lead on the timid and the trembling. I am often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have the heartache for them, but by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we shall all travel safely to the river's edge. Oh, how many I have had to part with there. I have stood on the brink, and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream, and I have almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates into the celestial city. This is our noble calling, dear friends, to take the hand of a trembling brother and sister in Christ and say, not only will I hope you fo- help you follow Jesus, I will help you make it to the river's edge. Lord, we thank you that you do not leave us alone, but you surround us with brothers and sisters, a great cloud of witnesses to help us follow you. And I pray, God, we would be a church marked by a culture of disciples making disciples for the sake of the next generation and for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.